Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe DeVader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first this week for our two games is 2006's Gears of War, the technical showpiece at the beginning of the Xbox 360 era that cemented the system as the place where console gamers played shooters. After that, it's the quirky psychic adventure that spawned one of the biggest cult followings in all of gaming, 1994's Earthbound. Couple possible themes between the two <laughs> games this week. One of them is aliens. Uh, the other being games that we just don't get along well with. Mm, boy, that's speaking lightly. Because there are histories uh, with these two. But like last week, we will start off the show by talking about any headlines that have uh, come up as of late regarding our slate of composers that we have talked about so far on the show. Any updated news about them. And we'll start kind of as a follow-up even from last episode where there's the PAX West concert with Supergiant Games and their 10-year anniversary with Darren Korb and Ashley Barrett and Austin Wintry conducting the Chamber Orchestra. Uh, that happened. It seemed to go off very well. You can check out archives on Twitch. Maybe even they have an upload on YouTube. Uh, I'm sure that's out there somewhere. But yeah, um, kudos to them. That sounds like it went really well. Meanwhile, uh, Grant Kirkhope's remix of Spiral Mountain from Banjo-Kazooie is officially added to Smash, along with six others, uh, because Banjo is out in Smash. We're actually recording literally like 10 minutes after... <laughs> Half an hour after that direct, so... Uh, yeah, kind of a crazy one. So we're a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit loopy. So that would kind of be why. I don't think we're as loopy, though, as Toby Fox, because, boy, that Nintendo Direct was a big news bit for Toby Fox. First of all, starting with uh, the game Town uh, has been renamed to Little Town Hero, and then suddenly revealed that, yeah, Toby Fox is doing the music. Okay. Just out of nowhere. Game Freak, uh, you know, getting him to do that. That's awesome. And not not only that, but uh, a Sans costume from Undertale got added to Smash as a as a purchasable, downloadable content piece. Uh, and it comes with a remix of Megalovania done by Toby Fox himself. Good day to be Toby Fox. Now it's a me costume, but Sans is in Smash. And I couldn't help but just burst out laughing when... Masahiro Sakurai is like, he was very requested. <laughs> it's very popular in the West. And my roommate Ben's sitting there like, I'm sure he is. But yeah, Megalovania. You know, that track we talked about during that Undertale episode is now in Smash. My goodness. Just amazing. Ooh. Big week of headlines, certainly. But I'm going to start talking about Gears of War. We're going to talk about the original Gears of War from 2006. Uh, relevant because the episode when this comes out in public. That's the release date for Gears 5 on Xbox One. But if you are an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate member, you can play on Friday, which I will be with my brother. Uh, because the last couple of Gears games have been like really good, especially for co-op between us. I, I kind of like those, but the original Gears of War, 
is one I have tried multiple times, and I just can't get past the beginning. It's just a weird sticking point for me. But because it's relevant, I'm going to talk about it. And so hopefully you get to learn some things like I did about the original Gears of War. So Epic Games, before they were a company only making Fortnite, it seems, uh, Fortnite content, as well as the extensive licensing of the Unreal Engine, they were a video game company who made video games. Apparently, the first concept for Gears of War was kind of worked up around 2000, 2001-ish as Unreal Warfare, because Epic at the time was known for the Unreal Tournament series. Uh, it was a game that was supposed to feature character classes and mechs in this closed arena against other players or bots. But then at that time, that was really when Unreal Tournament took off. So when this concept was ultimately revisited, the focus now at Epic Games was single player games. So Gears of War released on November 7th, 2006 in North America on Xbox 360. In Europe, they got the game on November 17th, Australia, November 23rd. So pretty close within the same month overall. There was a PC version that was released almost a year later to the day on November 6th, 2007. Uh, this included updated content, including added story content and expanded Act 5 of the game and other tweaks. There were some controversies that Xbox 360 players should be able to get the content, but they're not because it's different. It was, it was a weird time. Games for Windows Live, just a problem on PC. Then there was Gears of War Ultimate Edition, which was a remastered version that was made by The Coalition, who is now the team that works on Gears things. There was enhanced gameplay that they borrowed from other elements uh, you know, from the different games, as well as enhanced graphics. That was released on August 25th, 2015 on Xbox One and March 1st, 2016 on PC. It is developed by Epic Games and published by Microsoft Game Studios. Uh, the studio group that has kind of gone through different name changes, but at the time in 2006, Microsoft Game Studios. Gears of War, which is different than God of War, <laughs> even though people do, you know, G-O-W. Gears of War, it's a third-person shooter. Has this bulky, you know, bulky characters, this dystopic military sci-fi theming going on, and it is heavily, heavily reliant on cover mechanics and mobility between those shoulder-high walls or chest-high walls or however, however people describe it. Uh, it is unique because one of its primary gameplay mechanics that it really kind of created on its own, not really picked up in other game series, but something that's distinctly Gears is the active reload system. When you're reloading one of your guns, you don't just press a button and they go through a canned animation. No, a little slider appears in the upper right corner of your HUD, and there's a sweet spot that you can hit to press the reload button again. And if you hit that sweet spot, the reloading speed is much faster. If you miss it significantly, it takes a while to reload. So it adds a bit of variety uh, and a little more interactivity to that reload mechanic. Uh, there's also the Lancer, that is the iconic weapon from the Gears of War series, which is essentially an assault rifle that has an attached chainsaw blade on top of it. So 
and a whole lot of uh, chainsawing enemies happen in the Gears of War series, especially in those early games. So what is the plot of the original Gears of War? It has been 14 years since Emergence Day, or E-Day as it's known in the world, when the locust alien race invaded and attacked humanity on the planet Sera, S-E-R-A. Now, there is the Coalition of Ordered Governments, or COG. And the COG is humanity's last stand, essentially. And the COG's soldiers are called Gears, thus Gears of War. Now, Marcus Phoenix is your protagonist in this game, and he's spent the last four years in Jacinto Maximum Security Prison. He abandoned his military post in a vain attempt to save his father, Adam, four years ago. And so, you left your duty. That's a, that's a court-martialing for you. But humanity is desperate, uh, really, to push back the Locust Horde. So, Marcus is extracted from prison to join his allies in the Delta Squad, which includes his good buddy Dominic Dom Santiago, Augustus Cole, and Damon Baird. The whole question really is, can Delta Squad help defeat the Locust? Like, that's aliens. They're there. You beat them back with guns and chainsaws. What more do you want to know? So, what are our experiences with Gears of War? Literally nothing. Mm -hmm. Never touched a game. Barely ever seen trailers. Barely ever seen gameplay. I know nothing. Have zero interest or experience with gears of war it's just not my kind of game mm -hmm. i'm not a, i'm not a shooter boy i never have been really <laughs> i am in certain extents um like i said this first gears of war is one that i have real big sticking point problems with for whatever reason uh i i find it sluggish uh you know look going back to it is a little rough it's it's dated by by that sense uh, but yeah, it's just not a fun, engaging game to me. Now the current games, I mean, my, they're gorgeous uh, and I'm actually pretty excited to play Gears 5. I have it preloaded right now on Xbox one. Cause yeah, it's, it's good in co-op. It's real good in co-op. I don't know about single player, maybe a little rough there. Um, but yeah, so my knowledge on this game is pretty limited and hopefully you know, that doesn't come across a whole lot in the critical five <laughs> when we get to it, but it very well might. Uh, so it may not be as verbose in that section, but it's one of those ones where like you put on a Pandora playlist of video game music, and this is a soundtrack that pretty commonly comes up. So I find myself certainly more familiar with certain tracks on the soundtrack more than I am with the Gears of War game itself. Uh, not that it's, it's a bad thing or anything. I just, it's like, I recognize those songs, but not necessarily what their context is in the larger story. But learning about Gears of War was pretty interesting, actually. Uh, apparently, the total cost of development was about $10 million. And it's not a game that had like 100 people working on it. Apparently, only about 20 to 30 people were involved with the development at the time. Now, the lead designer of Gears of War was where a certain man made a name for himself. And that man was one Cliffy B, Cliff Blazinski. Uh, the lead designer at the time at Epic Games, like, Gears of War was his baby, his big pet project. Those first three games, like, him to a T. He would go on to have quite the career after that, uh, and 
certain crashes and burns therein, but just a couple. <laughs> but Gears of War was where Cliffy B made a name for himself, certainly. He said that three games inspired the design for Gears of War. There was, first of all, Resident Evil 4, because everybody loves Resident Evil 4, for its third-person shooting perspective. There was a game from Namco, I believe, called Kill Switch, uh, which apparently had this tactical cover system. And then, of all things, Bionic Commando. Uh, Bionic Commando more for the need of needing to move to different platforms. The idea for Gears of War, of course, being that you're in this cover system, but you got to move across the battlefield, get to these different covers, stick to that, you know, different angles on your enemies. But it's all about that movement. It's not about hunkering down and staying in one place. For Bionic Commando, it's the same way where you, it's, you don't have the, the robot arm or whatever, the, the, the wife arm, so to speak. Wife arm! To swing around in different places. But, uh, you know, I guess that was an interesting uh, game to, I guess, draw inspiration from as well. I mean, you know, the original Bionic Commando, not the, the Rad Spencer 2000, late 2001. Um, he also cited The Legend of Zelda for its storytelling, its world-building elements, the idea of acquiring and mastering tools as well as underground environments. And then even the name Gears of War is an homage, apparently, to Metal Gear, which was apparently a formative game for Blazinski and, you know, just a deep respect for Hideo Kojima. Gears of War at the time, was a technical showpiece, which is crazy to think of, but you got to realize it was a different time going into that new generation in, you know, developing during 2005, releasing in 2006 on, you know, the early times of Xbox 360. The game was first shown at Epic's Unreal Engine 3 showcase at GDC 2005, uh, just, you know, early 2005, generally around March is when GDC takes place. It was an unnamed title then that would run on the Xenon processor of the new Xbox at the time. Now, Epic's Tim Sweeney apparently had conversations with Microsoft and convinced them to double the RAM in the Xbox 360 from 256 megabytes to 512. Now, granted, currently Xbox One X has 12 gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's that's just pretty pretty crazy. Just you know, the the steep increase over time of uh, computer technology, but because of this doubling of RAM, it allowed Gears of War to run at an amazing 720p. Oh yeah! Which again, in 2006, I mean, that was Nintendo releasing the Wii to say we don't need to release an HD console. Those HD TVs aren't the norm. In everyone's houses. And so they got away with that for a few years. But again, 2006, a 720p game. Oh man, like that's that's a big deal. A lot of people really remember the marketing campaign for Gears of War though. And the famous trailer where Gary Jules's cover of Mad World played. And uh, I think for a long time at least, maybe even still to this day, that Mad World trailer is... What a lot of people point to is what video game trailers should aspire to. Uh, because I mean, just the masterful use of that music with Marcus running through a, a desolate city. I mean, that was a big deal for game trailers at the time. I don't even remember that trailer at all. Oh, I don't think I've ever even seen it. <laughs> wow. No, it's, it's a good one. 
Uh, it's it's certainly well known. And speaking of Marcus Phoenix, voiced by the legendary John DiMaggio, uh, you may know him for roles as Bender from Futurama or Jake the Dog from Adventure Time. Or Waka from Final Fantasy X. Absolutely. <laughs> but he's Marcus Phoenix and he's got this, this real gruff voice uh, working for him. So, yeah, good casting on that front. Gears of War has a Metacritic score currently standing at 94. Uh, great reviews at the time. It was the second highest rated game of 2006 behind The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Uh, if anything, Eurogamer's 8 out of 10 review score was probably the toughest. They had an interesting quote that said, quote, Let's not pretend that we're wallowing in the future of entertainment. What we have here is an extremely competent action game that's as polished and refined as it could be and is therefore very enjoyable. So, like, it's not the future of games, but it's good for what it is. It's, it's really good. Uh, so that's certainly interesting because when it came to the 2006 Video Game Awards show season, Gears of War was one of the most awarded games of that year. Uh, easily a standout title. When it came to award shows like the Dice Awards uh, for the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, it was nominated for 10 categories. It won eight, including Game of the Year. Uh, it also won Game of the Year at the GDC Awards. But I got to call out some attention to the BAFTAs that year. Gears of War was nominated five times in different categories. It didn't win anything. It wasn't even nominated for Best Game for that category. What were the nominees for best game that year? There was Black, Brain Age, Guitar Hero, Hitman Blood Money. We talked about that one. That's that's actually a pretty good one. Lego Star Wars 2, the original trilogy. And what ended up winning best game that year at the BAFTAs? Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter. Hmm. Kind of a strange list. Brain Age? Yeah. Okay, sure. Whatever. Getting a DS game in there? I don't know. I found that a little unusual. Gears of War ultimately became a very prominent franchise for the Xbox brand. I mean, you had sequels easily in the works. There was 2008's Gears of War 2, 2011's Gears of War 3, and then there was the spinoff that they don't really like all that much. It's Gears of War Judgment from 2013, where... Baird was the playable character, and it's, it's, a, it's a strange game. Then, on January 27th, 2014, Microsoft Studios acquired the rights to the intellectual property from Epic. So then that's where you get Gears of War 4 in 2016, and out now, Gears 5 here in 2019. Gears of War is apparently also one of those forever-in-Hollywood-limbo projects. Uh... There's apparently, as far as back as 2007, the rights to a film were acquired, and then it's just, it's kind of happening. And then suddenly there was a news announcement that Dave Bautista is going to be a playable character in the multiplayer for Gears 5, and he is seeming to mention that it's it's been a dream sort of thing. In the past, he said Marcus Phoenix would be a dream casting for him, and there's a news release that kind of mentions that Oh, may maybe that'll that'll happen. Maybe he he, but he wants to do this first. If Dave Bautista is Marcus Phoenix 
in a Gears of War movie, that's uh, that's perfect casting. That that would be that'd be really cool. But again, it's one of those movies that it's like like Uncharted, like Metal Gear Solid. Is it ever going to happen? Who knows? Uh, there are a lot of these movies that are just like, oh man, this video game did really well at one point. Uh, let's make a movie. Oh, that movie never never came out, and I honestly, most of them, I just assume they never will. That's probably a good assumption at that point. Uh, but Gears of War was also so popular and influential that it really lent its mechanics to other games going forward, especially when those games use the Unreal Engine. I mean, the most prominent example we can look at is the Mass Effect series. You look at the first Mass Effect, it's very RPG heavy, but Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3, the more action that was infused in those games with the Unreal Engine, that is straight Gears of War cover shooting mechanics with a little bit of freeze time, cast powers, whatever, but sticking to those walls shooting, that's Gears of War all over it. So uh, its, its impacts are still felt today, but really especially in those late aughts and early 2010s. Lest we forget the age of the chest high wall. Yes. What a time it was and still persists in a little bit <laughs> to this day. When it comes to the music for Gears of War, it belongs to one Kevin Riepel. Kevin Riepel, born in Cliffwood Beach, New Jersey. Uh, he learned piano and guitar at age six under the instruction of his uncle. Now, the score for Star Wars was apparently something that really intensified his interest in music. So he wanted to learn to how to play the trumpet. And he did so in, a, in about fourth grade or so. And throughout high school, he was a member of different bands and orchestras. I can relate. That was me. I was a band kid in high school. I played the sax, though. So not really a member of any symphony orchestras. But yeah, trumpet would be good for both of those, certainly. Now, after high school, he began private independent studies uh, when it came to composition and orchestration at the Village East Conservatory of Music before he then moved on to the Mann's College of Music in New York City. In his early professional career, he worked with Kevin Menthe, uh, kind of in like the early 2000s or so, until Cliff Blazinski discovered his demo reel. Now, Cliff was looking for a different sound for the Unreal Tournament series and really liked Kevin's music. So Kevin Reeple was assigned to work on the Unreal Tournament series starting with Unreal Tournament 2003. He did get picked for Gears of War as well, and it was his first time working with a live recorded orchestra for one of his scores. The Wikipedia article for Ken Reeple then throws you for a loop, and I'll, I'll quote it here. Quote, in October 2010, Reeple suffered a sudden heart failure and was hospitalized. He had a pump installed in his heart until a donor heart could replace it and underwent the heart transplant in July 2011. Shortly afterwards, a rare tumor was found on his adrenal gland, which was affecting his blood pressure. He has since made a good recovery. Holy crap. Yeah, that's a bit of a change of uh, tone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a big swerve, but glad he is with us and still doing great work. Working on games, films, TV. His game discography, of course, includes Gears of War. There were some tracks on Gears of War 2, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, the Unreal Tournament series since 2003 has had a prominent uh, hand in that. And I think even when they're working on a new Unreal Tournament game, he probably is working on that game as well. 
Aliens Colonial Marines. Rough game, but very good music. Uh, he also worked on Crackdown 2 and Resistance Burning Skies. I thought you'd be interested to know that along with Kevin Manfay, uh, he worked on apparently six Nancy Drew games, uh, including some of the ones that were mentioned on the Wikipedia article being Secret of the Scarlet Hand, Ghost Dogs of Moon Lake, and The Haunted Carousel. I'm having flashbacks to the war. Uh, I've played one of those. Oh, yeah. I played Secret of the Scarlet Hand. It's not very good. <laughs> it's actually the worst one I've played. Uh, so I guess I should give quick context for anybody that doesn't know. Uh, I play Nancy Drew games because our friend Moses has cursed me. Um, some of them are pretty all right. Some of them are, one of them is very good. Secret of the Scarlet Hand is really bad and really boring. <laughs> I haven't played Ghost Dogs of Moonlight or Haunted Carousel yet, though. So. Apparently there were a few others, but at least those were the ones that were mentioned uh, in, in interviews. You know, the interviewer said, like, and you've worked on six Nancy Drew games, but only those three were cited on Wikipedia. So go figure. Uh, for films, he recently scored Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, he's worked on some horror films, which actually makes sense based on his, his style of composing. There's Silent Night, Contracted, Cabin Fever, Patient Zero. And in his earlier days, he worked on Sky High as a music programmer at a, that Disney original movie. So I didn't realize movies needed music programmers. <laughs> you, you never know. Uh, when it came to TV, there was Justice League action. He co-composed Brandy and Mr. Whiskers uh, with Kevin Manthe as well. Why do I remember that? Sh Why do I remember that show? I think that was one where Kaylee Cuoco was the voice of Brandy, the golden retriever dog that was anthropomorphic in a sense. I think that was that show. I believe. Yeah. That, you're thinking of the right one. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a weird pull, but okay. <laughs> and he also provided additional music to Invader Zim, Shaolin Showdown, and Johnny Test. I think even for Johnny Test, he did the, the main title composition as well. So interesting selections there. For Gears of War's uh, historical development, it was Reaple's work on the game that began in around February 2005. So year and a half before the game came out. Originally, he was only assigned to write the main themes, but Epic Games liked what he did so much that they expanded his role to include the entire score. So it's a pretty darn good first impression. Um, there was all sorts of concept material and you know backstory that was done in pre-production to really help kind of formulate the creative process for the score. But he received early builds of the game with cinematics about halfway through development. And so from there on, he closely collaborated with the development team on what influence the music should have on the player and the story. The game overall had a theme of destroyed beauty, which applied not only to the visuals, but the music as well. In the different combat encounter themes, uh, the score included things such as mechanical percussive elements, altered samples of explosions, hits and impacts, as well as electric guitar stingers. The orchestral sound, though, that was added also really just fleshed the sound out, and that was recorded by the Northwest Symphonia Orchestra. Kevin Reeple worked on Gears of War 2's score for about 10 months, and he said it was about 50 minutes worth of music, 
before they had Steve Jablonski sign on for the series, at least until Gears of War Judgment. Now, some of Reaple's ambient tracks still stayed in the game. He was still credited for the game as additional music, but they didn't, he didn't really mention in that interview why they made that drastic change. So, unfortunate, hmm. because I think Gears of War, the first one's score really stands out more than the others. Just my opinion. If you're wondering who's composing Gears 5 as well as composed Gears of War 4, that's Ramin Jawadi, who you may know from the Game of Thrones score. He also scored Pacific Rim. Yeah, plenty of other ones. I think I'd like to get to him eventually to talk about his uh, his works. So they're, they're fascinating, certainly. Let's talk about those five critical tracks, though. Uh, and I, I can only provide so much on this one, but I think I was able to pick five pretty easily. And we got to start with the title track, Gears of War. Certainly the main theme, one of those iconic themes in gaming, especially in the mid-2000s. Uh, you hear this one with those horns, and it's it's just badass. Like, it's it's one of the, again, we talk about certain songs where it's like, yep, it had to be here. This is the definitive one. You've probably heard this one before. Uh, that's, that's this song to a T. If, you got to be able to peg that this one is from Gears of War. I can't. <laughs> I like I said I have zero experience so I've never heard this song before. <laughs> this is my first time. Well, you got some learning to do then because yeah this Sounds like it. this is the one that you, you got to peg to this game for sure. The others not as much but this one certainly. Uh, I wouldn't expect many to be able to peg the next one though. Certainly this one is Jacinto Prison. This one comes from the opening level where you're breaking Marcus out of prison. Uh, so I recognize this one the most because it's the one I've played the most, trying to give this one another shot. And uh, so it, it's certainly one that sticks in my ear. Um, but I don't know, maybe not for the best of reasons, but it's still a very good piece. Uh, it's you know good musical introduction to kind of get you into the game. Uh, you know these these quiet woodwinds are. Just kind of there, kind of lingering in the background where that's this, the percussion and bass just really keep up this deliberate pace. Just keep pushing forward. Like you have bigger things ahead of you. The, the score gets only more intense from here, but you have work to do. The cogs have uh, work to do there against the locust. So yeah, yeah, I do like this one a lot. Yeah. I was going to say it's very, it's a lot more quiet. Woodwinds is not something I expect to hear 
from a game called Gears of War with the very little I know about the game and it's big, huge, manly, car-sized men. Uh, so that was certainly a surprise to hear. I'll give it that. Yeah. We really ramp things up here for number three on the Critical Five. And this is Fish in a Barrel. Now, I don't know where this plays in the game, but I, I get the sense that this is like, we're getting introduced to some bad dudes. I don't know if it's General Rom, the final boss of the game, but oh, this is intense. Like, oh, damn. <laughs> uh, like, just really good, the, the really deep brass and these just heavy, melodic you know, just going at it. Like, it's it's real good bad guy material right here. Uh, so, yeah. I, I wish I had context to know where this plays in the game. But this really stands out. It's like, it, it catches your ear and it's like, trouble is ahead. I can see this being a final boss. I think you might be right. Dude, look, I got all the same information you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's not final boss, but... Because I think it's kind of like early to middle in the soundtrack listing, but if it's not like introducing a significant villain. Cause like, I only know general Ram because he's in killer instinct. <laughs> You're right. He is. <laughs> and so technically Kevin Reeple has a credit on killer instinct season three because of gears of war theme being used there. So hmm. interesting there. Uh, number four on the critical five train wreck locust theme. I mean, it's pretty important because it's the locust theme. <laughs> so it's certainly a leitmotif that will represent the enemy horde in this game. And I think it's a really, in a way, it's a perfect complement to the Gears of War theme. It's just, it's darker. It's a little more twisted, uh, but it kind of gives you that same feeling. Like, you know, these two forces are going to butt heads. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when it's called Locust Theme, yeah, it's it's a track kind of near the end of the game, but it's it's really representative of this force that you're going up against, and I I like it, I like it a lot, and it's it's one that does pop up a lot when uh, it's on places like Pandora or whatever. So it's another pretty recognizable track from the soundtrack, but I wouldn't say it's iconic level like Gears of War is. I think this is my favorite song on your Critical Five here. Hmm. I don't know. Something about that. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah, no, it's it's a definitely a good one for sure. But we end the five set here with Train Ride to Hell. 
And like, the final boss takes place on a train. It's a slog against General Rum. I don't know where exactly this song takes place, but like it's basically the last one on the soundtrack. So it's got to be in Endgame, whether it's during the final boss or the final cutscene. Um, it just had to be here. Like, especially these these string chords at the end. And it kind of like softens out a little bit. Uh, just gives like a really good balance to these really like heavy brass hits throughout the score. So I, I know those last two kind of get paired together pretty frequently, but I think they both have to be here. They're, they're really good ones. The ending of the clip specifically. Does that sound like Arkham city to you? A little bit. I can hear it. I can hear it for sure. It's got a very similar feel to it. Obviously this would have come first. Yeah. But I don't know. That threw me off a mm. little bit. <laughs> I, I can get it. I, I totally understand that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. When it comes to tracks on the cutting room floor, I wanted to put a couple here. Different sounds overall, but I, I really wanted to put 14 years after E-Day on the list. Because this is another one that takes place really early in the game. A lot of exposition storytelling going on here. But it's soft. It's spooky. And the the wavering of these pitches. The da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Yeah, it's it's a little rough. Uh, I I don't blame you. It's interesting with Gears Five. Like Rod Ferguson of the Coalition is really out there saying like, "Oh no, this is a good starting point. You can start at Gears Five. It's okay." And it's like, I I get you want more sales, but is it is it really? That's like somebody. It feels like somebody coming out and being like, oh, you can start at Yakuza six. You'll be fine. And then every, every, it depends on what the fans are saying because every Yakuza fan will tell you like, don't do that. Yeah. So I don't know about that to transition to the next game. We like to highlight a fan cover, whether it's on OC remix on YouTube. I found one on YouTube from Bader Nana, B A D E R N A N A. It's a rock version of Gears of War, that main theme, and it sounds so good with that instrumentation. So please enjoy. We'll be right back. So let's talk about Earthbound. Complete change of gears here, pun sort of intended. Uh, (laughs) Earthbound was originally released for the Super Famicom on August 27th, 1994 in Japan, with a North American release following the next year on June 5th, 1995. You might notice that I didn't mention a European release. We'll get to that. Mm. So it is known as Mother 2 in Japan because it is actually a sequel. It is the sequel to the Famicom game Mother. Mother never came out in the West, despite the fact that there was a full localization done. Like, just done. Nintendo had it. It was finished. But it never actually came out for two reasons that have been cited in the past. One being that they kind of realized that it was the game was too big to really fit on an NES cartridge very well. And the other being, Super Nintendo was about to come out. Why bother? So, game just never came out. They localized it completely, never got released. So, for this reason, uh, in America, the game was changed to Earthbound to avoid confusion as to Mother 2, what about Mother 1? The game follows a young boy named Ness who, when a meteor crashes right outside of his small hometown in Wanette, awakens to psychic powers and is sent on a journey to stop an apocalyptic event that will be caused by a cosmic threat known as Gigas. He does this by journeying to the eight My Sanctuary locations around the world and gathering the power that is uh, present at each of these locations. Along the way, he picks up three party members, Paula, a young girl from the town of Tucson, who has very similar psychic powers to Ness. In fact, she might actually be a little bit stronger when it comes to being psychic. Uh, A child genius from Winters named Jeff. And Pooh, a prince from the far-off land of Dalam, uh, who has psychic powers of his own, his being a result of training throughout his life. Uh, Throughout the game, this group is also chasing after Ness's neighbor and generally unlikable person, Pokey Minch as he keeps sticking his nose into things and making everything worse for everybody around him. The game is a JRPG, meaning that uh, it's got, you know, sort of random encounters, 
turn-based battles, level ups, abilities you get at certain levels, stats, etc., etc., etc. However, instead of the usual turn-based stuff, Earthbound uses something that is a weird mix of like turn-based and Final Fantasy's ATB system, almost, I want to say. That's the best I can come up with to describe it. Uh, basically, at the start of every round, you select what everybody is going to do in that round, and the order in which everybody goes, including the enemies, uh, is decided by their speed stat. It's... No. Uh, it's also very famous for its rolling health, which uh, in most RPGs... When you get hit by an attack, the damage is subtracted from your health immediately. Uh, and if you hit zero, you just immediately die. In Earthbound, it's a little bit different, in which if you are hit by a mortal blow, uh, the health starts to tick down to zero instead of immediately hitting zero, unless you're hit by something like PK Flash, which has a chance of being an instant kill. Thanks, Gigas. And uh, you can, if you heal them before it hits zero, then you will save them from, uh, from death. Uh, hmm. It is known for its quirky sense of humor and its fun characters, as well as a very unique setting that is uh, sort of a caricature of America. But the game is highly divisive when it comes to whether or not people think it's actually good. So what are our experiences with Earthbound? Because God knows everybody else knows mine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like you with Gears of War, I'm not going to say I'm ignorant of Earthbound things. I mean, I'm familiar with Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> I know of Ness and Paula and Jeff and Pooh and, and Pokey and things like that and, and Gigas. And, but I have zero interest to play this game, especially when I hear of your adventures. Yeah, for people that don't know, uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times on this show. I do uh, another podcast with our friend Matt called Smaster Pieces, where we're playing one game for every character in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And uh, Ness is in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, and there's really no other option than Earthbound. Three months! Granted, the fact that it took so long isn't entirely the game's fault. It's also like E3 happened that month and Matt moved to a new apartment and a bunch of other stuff that got in the way. But like this game feels like it was an era of my life, despite only being three months. Um, Played the whole thing. We did finish it. Uh, there are four entire episodes of Smasterpieces, just us talking about Earthbound that you can go listen to if you want my full thoughts on the game. But let me sum it up for you. I didn't enjoy my time. Yeah, you stuck yourself with talking about it again here. It fits for the theme of, you know, games that just don't sit well with us. At the very least, one of the things I do really like about Earthbound is the soundtrack. It is very good. So... I can at least talk about that in a in a happy manner. So, Mother, the first game, was released in Japan in 1989 for the Famicom and got generally good reception uh, upon release, with Famitsu giving it a 31 out of 40, and reviewers commenting on how they liked that it built itself as a parody of RPGs, but also didn't stray too far away from what makes the genre unique. Uh, there were some criticisms about how the game was way too hard and also not very well balanced at all, but it still managed to sell about 150,000 copies, uh, and that's on the Famicom having only been released in Japan. So 
it wasn't the biggest splash, but it did pretty all right. The series is the brainchild of Shigesato Itoi, uh, who served as lead designer, writer, and director for the first game. Itoi's background is not actually entirely in video games. In fact, the Mother franchise and a bass fishing game are the only four games he's ever made. Though, he seems like somebody that kind of like puts his finger in every pie he possibly can. He writes books. He does voice acting. Uh, he does live acting. He has a weekly newsletter, probably multiple. I can't tell. And he does he does a lot of stuff. Notably, uh, for his voice acting stuff, he actually plays the dad in the Japanese dub of, uh, I shouldn't call it the dub, in the Japanese version of My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, that's a weird poll. Yeah, little bit, isn't it? Um, so the dad in My Neighbor Totoro canonically made Earthbound now. Itoi was also the uh, founder of Ape Inc. Uh, by suggestion of then Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi, who I guess just went to him and was like, hey, you should make a game. Here's some money. Make a studio. Like, that's apparently exactly how it went down. Yamauchi was a weird man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the development of Earthbound took place over five years, apparently by almost an entirely different team than uh, the people that made the first mother. And Wikipedia is careful to uh, mention this, so I figured I should too. Uh, Because most of the members of the team were unmarried, they were apparently perfectly fine to work overnight on the project. Crunch culture! (laughs) Woo! Still just as big then as it is today. In fact, probably was worse back then. Uh, However, the game taking five years to make was not the plan. Uh, and the game was shaping up to take a lot longer than it was supposed to. In fact, it almost got canceled a couple of times. Uh, for this reason, Hal Laboratories was brought in to help with the project, including, most notably, Satoru Iwata, mm. who did a lot of the programming on Earthbound. Uh, Hal took over most of the game's programming, while Ape worked on specific smaller-scale aspects of the game, whether it be programming smaller things or design or things like that. An initial thought for the game, apparently, was to have a space travel feature and have it revolve around going to different planets instead of just being confined to one planet. But uh, Itoi decided that this was a cliche idea and threw it out four months into development. Uh, deciding instead that he wanted to make a game that would appeal to audiences outside of the usual target demographics of the time, including girls, which a lot of games back then weren't really working towards that demographic, which was a big loss. So Itoi was ahead of his time with that. But did he really succeed in that end, though? Hey, Paula is cool. Paula is cool, but I don't know if it... When it becomes a big cult hit, sure, but I don't know about the demographic spread i'm gonna be honest with you i don't know what demographic earthbound was going for (laughs) um i mean it obviously hit it but (laughs) i don't know how to describe that demographic uh the rolling health feature apparently initially started as pachinko balls that would fall off the screen every time a character was hit but then they realized that uh in rpgs near the end of the game characters uh Get a lot of health. (laughs) And so 
that's a lot of pachinko balls. And they figured, all right, that's probably not going to work. So in the final game, it's more of an odometer. Uh, those, those, if you don't know what an odometer is, first off, how? Second of all, it's, it's the, uh, the things that count how many miles you have on a car, the rolling wheels, which I guess a lot of them are digital nowadays, but you, you should know what an odometer is. Go watch Matilda. <laughs> Danny DeVito's Matilda. Uh, and this ended up flowing a lot better uh, for the direction they were going. Uh, Iwata, at certain points, mentioned that Ape's programming team seemed especially eager to tackle challenging mechanics, likely due to Itoi's development process that he described as, quote, reckless wildness. Uh, Itoi's goal was to be constantly coming up with new ideas uh, in order to encourage his team to think outside the box and try and think of ideas that video games weren't doing during that time. Uh, and he succeeded. To be fair, another another up that I can give to Earthbound, despite not really enjoying the game, is that there are a lot of ways in which that game is kind of really progressive. Uh, granted, there are just as many ways where the game feels dated as hell, but uh, stuff like if you back attack an enemy that you are way, way over-leveled to fight, you'll just instantly win and get the experience. Uh, or... The fact that when you die, it doesn't boot you to the title screen, something that a lot of other, not just RPGs, but a lot of other games did back then. I just finished playing Donkey Kong Country for Smash Pieces, and it does that. Mm. That's a thing I can give, you know, to, I can give a props on. Uh, apparently, when trying to think up the names for the main characters, the default names, obviously you can name all four of your party members in Earthbound, but they, they have default names, Ness, Paula, Jeff, and Boo. Uh, Etoy came up with those names because he didn't like any of the suggestions that his team brought up, which I want to hear what those suggestions were hmm. desperately. Uh, also NPCs around the game were apparently based on actual real life personalities. Uh, the example that Wikipedia included was the miners in dusty dunes desert are based on real executives from a major Japanese, uh, construction company. So, alrighty. Whether that is a compliment or an insult, I couldn't tell you. But they're there. Uh, also, another big sort of unique thing about Earthbound is the, the battle backgrounds. So, like, if you've never seen a fight in Earthbound, they've got these trippy backgrounds in the back. And it's very, uh, very weird. I just realized recently, actually, uh, when Ness does his final smash in ultimate uh the background changes into an earthbound battle background mm, interesting it's really cool i didn't notice that until a couple weekends ago when we were playing and somebody happened to use the final smash and somebody else pointed it out these were made by one person and there are almost 200 of them mm. and this was apparently this person's only job for two years Etoy refers to these backgrounds as, quote, video drug, which that's not entirely wrong. They're very psychedelic and trippy and weird. I mean, I get it. But uh, the main thing that you might be familiar with when it comes to Earthbound, the thing that everybody knows about, is the final boss fight with Gigas. It is the most famous thing from the entire game. Everybody knows about it. Uh, since 
its inception, since it's uh, it's been made public, there have been many urban legends about what inspired the fight with Gigas. Uh, most of them sort of right, but not really. According to Etoy, the fight with Gigas is inspired by some childhood trauma that was the result of him accidentally walking into a screening of the film The Military Policeman and the Dismembered Beauty, specifically a scene where a woman is violently murdered. Like, if you walked into Psycho at Mm -hmm. that scene, it could kind of mess you up. Little bit, especially if you were if you were very young. Uh, another fun fact that means nothing to anybody, but me, I guess. Uh, Etoy's favorite town in the game is Threed, but uh, before that, his his favorite was apparently Summers. I don't know what happened to make him change his mind about Summers being his favorite, but that's exactly how it's worded. So. Uh... When I say that the game was not really meant to take five years in development, uh, the original release date was January of 1993, uh, but the game changed scope twice. The second one saw the game moving from a 12 megabit cartridge to a 24 megabit cartridge, which needed more time to develop, which uh, also gave them a little bit of time to add a little bit more personality and flair to the game. Uh, and it pushed the release date back a year. And according to them, development was completed on the game in May of 1994. According to Itoi, Miyamoto loved the game. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Mario and, and Zelda and all them, he loved the game. And it was one of the first RPGs that he had ever completed. In fact, not one of the first RPG that Miyamoto ever completed. And knowing what I know about Miyamoto, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, I could see that for sure. That checks out 100%. That seems entirely at Miyamoto's alley. Uh, so, another very interesting section of Earthbound's development pre-release is its localization. Uh, localization of the game initially started with uh, Dan Osen, or Dan Osen. I don't know how to pronounce that, but we'll say I got it right. Uh, being in charge of the localization. However, he got about 10% into the script and then had to move on to other projects. So from there, localization was handled entirely by Marcus Lindbolm. That's right. One person. Uh, Lindbolm was apparently given a lot of liberties to make the script, quote, as weird as possible. And he, uh, says that he found a huge challenge in translating what he described as an outsider's view of the U.S. Before I go any further, I believe there's actually a book about the localization of Earthbound, uh, Legends of Localization. I think Fangamer uh, sells it. I don't know if Lindbaum wrote it, but I do know that it's it's just all about the different localization changes they had to make in Earthbound and why. Uh, I would love to read it. It sounds fascinating, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as expected... From localization, a lot of changes had to be made to the game. Side note, Wikipedia, at the start of the localization section of uh, this game's article, felt it needed to describe or explain what localization means. Which, in my opinion, if you're looking up Earthbound, Hmm. you probably already know. Different puns and jokes that would only make sense in Japanese, as is usual, were replaced with 
references to things like Bugs Bunny and the film This Is Spinal Tap. I think I remember seeing the Bugs Bunny reference. I don't remember seeing the Spinal Tap reference. I was just about to ask, where do they turn it up to 11 in that game? That has to be the reference, right? That's the only one anybody knows. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I don't remember seeing that at any point. Uh, Other notable changes include the removal of references to real-world logos, like a Coca-Cola logo on the side of a truck. Also, references to religion, because this was during that time, uh, which included things like the crosses on tombstones. All right, sure, whatever. And the red crosses on hospitals, which... That's a little extreme. Real hospitals have those. I get crosses on tombstones, but the, the red cross is not representing Catholicism? It's a universal symbol for hospital i like health like <laughs> like uh, uh. and also any references to uh alcohol were changed to coffee which i think you can buy a cup of coffee in earthbound does that mean in japan ness could just get drunk it's japan probably that's weird ness is like 10 um <laughs> another notable change is that members of the blue cult in happy happy village were changed to look a little bit less like the Ku Klux Klan, because that would not fly in America. They still look a lot like the Ku Klux Klan, but I don't remember what exactly they added, but they still look a lot like them. I think they, like, rounded the tip of their hoods, Hmm. but they're still very obviously supposed to be the KKK. Wow. Probably the most famous change is that in Magicant, which is a, a world, after you get all of the My Sanctuary locations, Ness is transported to a world within his mind called Magicant. Uh, in Japan, in the Japanese version, Ness is naked during this section, because in Japanese culture, uh, nakedness is seen as a symbol of purity. In America, it's just a kid running around naked, um, which we don't look too fondly upon so Ness is in his pajamas in the American version. So despite huge success in Japan selling almost 300,000 copies Earthbound kind of tanked in America (laughs) selling 140,000 copies total. That's less than Mother One sold in Japan. Yeah, wow. This is largely considered to be the fault of multiple things, not the least of which was Nintendo of America's awful and bizarre marketing campaigns for it. The most famous being the This Game Stinks campaign, which were magazine ads. Magazine ads with scratch and sniff that made bad smells. How does that advertise Earthbound? It doesn't, really. (laughs) There is one section of the entire game where bad smells are even a theme. What? What? 4D. (laughs) You want to know the worst part about how bad the marketing was? The budget was $2 million. Which may not sound like a lot now, but in mid-90s money, pretty good. Mid-90s, that was like a, a modest game budget um so yeah it didn't sell well uh and uh due to the fact that this game sold like ass in america and the fact that the n64 was 
pretty much on the horizon already, Earthbound was not released in Europe at all. In any way. So, despite this, though, Earthbound would go on to create probably the biggest cult following in video games. I can't think of a bigger one. I don't think there is one. This is it. This is the biggest one. Uh, With people inspired by Earthbound, ranging from Toby Fox of Undertale fame, who we've already mentioned this episode, where that took him. And I found interesting, Trey Parker, one of the co-creators of South Park, was apparently an Earthbound fan. I can see that for sure. I can kind of see that, I guess. Uh, I'm not a fan of South Park either, so hey, he got that part right. Uh, The game has since built a rabid fan base, which, after much lobbying, finally convinced Nintendo to release it on Wii U. Uh, Virtual Console, specifically, in 2013. Not only that, but on the same day, they also finally released the localization of Mother 1, now officially renamed Earthbound Beginnings, after sitting on the finished localization for decades. So they finally got their thing. Uh, Earthbound also got a sequel. Uh, being Mother 3 for the Game Boy Advance in 2006, but it was never released outside of Japan, and despite massive fan outcry from people who will never shut up, it probably never will be. It's just not worth it for them to go localize the game so that a small subset of people can can buy it. And I know people are like, but Earthbound Beginnings came out, and again, that's because the localization was already done. It costed them zero dollars. <laughs> so, sorry. Unless Mother 3 gets remade in Japan, we are probably never seeing it. And I hope it does. I hope they remake all three of them, to be perfectly honest. I would buy it if they uh, remade Earthbound to be good and like Mother 3, because Mother 3 is a fantastic game. But of course, uh, nowadays, Ness is mainly kept relevant by his inclusion in the Super Smash Bros. series. Uh, because he has been in it since the first game. He is one of 12 characters that has been in every single Smash game. Uh, despite the fact that he has been on the chopping block for just about every single one. <laughs> he was in Smash 64 to uh, advertise Mother 64, which was in development at the time. That game got canceled, but it was too late. Ness was already in the game. In Melee, he was supposed to be replaced with Lucas, who was the main character of Mother 3. Again, Mother 64 got canceled. <laughs> so Ness was put in instead. Uh, and then Lucas finally made his way into Smash uh, in Super Smash Bros. Brawl. And uh, I believe Ness was going to be cut for that too, but ended up not being cut. He was a, a hidden character instead. They were going to remove him from Wii U, I think, but for some reason decided not to. Lucas was, though, and wasn't added until DLC later on. And then, of course, in Ultimate, everyone is here. And that's the only reason Ness is still in that game. Everyone remembers from Brawl. Imamade. Up until now. <laughs> up until now. Good good times. Uh, Etoy has since stepped away from the games industry, claiming that if there is a fourth game in the series, he has no interest in being a part of it. And uh, has also said that if somebody else wants to pick up the series, he has no qualms with that. But to which I say, if Etoy is not involved, I don't care. 
Itoi is like the thing that makes those games good. His involvement, his writing. He's the you know, straw that stirs the drink and all that. Yeah. And uh, as as Matt put it in our Earthbound episode, very few people get to say, I told the story I want to say, I'm done. Uh, let him just say that. Fans want Mother 4. I think they're nuts. Uh, I don't think we need a Mother 4. And if Itoi is not going to make it, I don't want it. I'd rather get that supposedly secret, but maybe not so secret translation that may be sitting around in Nintendo Europe for Mother 3. I, I just want that. I don't believe it's real. Um, also, after the rocky development of Earthbound, uh, Ape Inc. was dismantled and put back together as Creatures Inc., who is now famous for their work on the Pokemon franchise, among other stuff, uh, alongside Game Freak and under the Pokemon Company. We've mentioned Creatures Inc. in this show. Yeah, they make a lot of the uh, the I believe they make the trading cards. They make a lot of the spinoffs, that kind of thing. So, uh, the music for Earthbound was done by a few people. We'll get to the others in a bit, but for now, I want to focus on Keiichi Suzuki. Keiichi Suzuki was born on August twenty eighth, nineteen fifty one, in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, not much to be found on his life, honestly, but there is a few things. He is not a game composer. He is just a musician uh, that happened to be roped into doing the music for this game. Uh, he joined a band called Hachimitsu Pie in the early 70s. I don't know if that's Hachimitsu Pai, but I'm assuming it's Pie. I don't know. If you're sticking to Japan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he released an album with them in 1973. Then later in the 70s, he would co-found and be a regular singer in the band The Moon Riders, who I believe are still around, but they don't have a Wikipedia article, so it's hard to tell. Uh, They are described often, I guess, as one of Japan's most innovative rock bands. Uh, He would later go on to form The Beatniks alongside fellow musician Yukihiro Takahashi, and this is a duo in which he still appears to be a member of today. Uh, he's released three solo albums, being Captain Hate and First Mate in 2008, Pirate Radio Seasick in 2009, and In Retrospect in 2011. But he hasn't released anything since then. Good for him for still making music, because if he's pushing 70 soon, uh, that's mm-hmm. pretty impressive. Uh, as for his discography, he has done music for three games, Mother 1 and 2, slash Earthbound. Uh, and a game called Real Sound, Cause No Regret. Never heard of it, but it was the only other game mentioned on his discography, so I figured it was worth at least saying the name. Uh, he also does a lot of films, and in fact, it seems that films are what he does the most nowadays, uh, including he, has, he scored the uh, anime adaptation of Uzumaki, uh, that is Junji Ito's very famous uh, horror manga. Uh, that was made in 2000, I believe. I didn't know this. He scored Tokyo Godfathers, which is uh, Satoshi Kon's third film. A very, very good movie. Very weird movie. Uh, Oko's Inn, which I believe actually came out like last year. Uh, and he, for live action stuff, the only sort of names, obviously I didn't recognize them. They're all Japanese films. Uh, but I did recognize a name behind one of them, which is Takeshi Kitano, also known as Beat Takeshi. Uh and he made a, a series of films with Outrage in the name, and I guess Suzuki is a usual composer on those films. So, as for some development research 
about the actual game soundtrack itself, uh, not only is Suzuki one of the people that worked on it, but also Hip Tanaka, who we have talked about before, and then Hiroshi Kanazu and Toshiyuki Ueno, who I could not find a damn thing on either of those men, past the fact that they worked on Earthbound. And in fact, Wikipedia doesn't even list them as being composers on the game. You have to, like, scroll down to the music section of the article. It's weird. Uh, Inspiration was apparently drawn heavily from The Beach Boys, with Tanaka saying that he would listen to one of their albums often while on his way to Suzuki's home to work on the soundtrack. Uh, Other inspirations listed, there were a lot. There were a lot of inspirations listed for the soundtrack of this game, but the main ones that stood out to me were uh, Randy Newman, Ray Bradbury, and John Lennon. Uh, Tanaka also says that he listened to the album Stay Awake, various interpretations of music from vintage Disney films a lot during development, which, honestly, I'm, I feel like that title probably implies all you need to know about the development environment of this game. Mm-hmm. Itoi apparently believes that this is the first game soundtrack to incorporate vibrato in its music, which doesn't seem right to me, but I don't, I can't name another game before that. So I one that comes to mind is the opera section in Final Fantasy VI. That is true. Just saying. This game came out the same year as FF6, but like a couple of months after. Yeah. So let's get into that critical five. Remember that mention of the Final Fantasy VI that might get mentioned. Not during this, but like soon. Uh the first one, I'm gonna start with one of the first songs you hear in the whole game. One at theme. This song was, of course, done by Keiichi Suzuki, uh, first town in the game. Obviously, it's Ness's hometown, and it just has this nice, casual, happy feeling to it. Uh, certainly brings to mind the feeling of being in a small town where everybody knows each other, and, and everybody's just sort of happily living their own lives, and uh, there's not much to say about it other than it's just a nice, happy, starting town song. I think a lot of people sometimes peg this as, like, the main Earthbound theme. So if like if it's your starting town, like that kind of makes sense. But it's a good one to put here on the list for sure because it's certainly one a lot of people associate with this game. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I think it's my favorite town theme. No, I think I like Delam better personally, but I think this is a better representation of of Earthbound as a whole. After that, we have the best song on the soundtrack. Buy something, will you? which is apparently technically an arrangement of Humoresque of a Little Dog from Mother One, 
which also then got arranged again for Mother 3, though I forget what the name was and it's not important now. When we talk about Mother 3, I'll probably mention it there. Um, Hip Tanaka wrote that one. I couldn't find a credit for who wrote this one, so I'm assuming Hip Tanaka just managed handled this one too. Yeah, did the composition at least. Maybe someone did the arrangement, but yeah. the core of it is key. Uh, it is one of the catchiest shop themes in the history of video games. Oh, sure. It's so good. It's so fun to whistle, and like you just picture a banjo somewhere just casually plucking it away. It's so good. Uh, it also really fits the idea that this is supposed to be a caricature of, of suburban America mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Also, shout outs to the Smash remix of this song, which is one of the best remixes in the series and by far the best remix from, from Mother. Just in general. Oh, such a good song. Yeah, they really did the song justice in Smash. That's a really good one. Next up, we have Battle Against an Unsettling Opponent. Here's another thing I gotta really give props to Earthbound for. It's very important to me. I've talked in the past so many- every time we talk about an RPG, I talk about how, like, your battle theme needs to be good if I'm gonna hear it over and 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 just get tired of it. Eventually. Earthbound mitigates this by having ten generic battle themes that play depending on what kind of enemy you are fighting. Hmm. Uh, which is really good, actually. This is the best one, though. Like, that upright bass part. Mmm. It's so good. There are a lot of others that are very, very good, but none of them come anywhere near this one. And you can definitely see where Toby Fox gets inspiration from Earthbound, where we've talked about on past episodes, with things like, you know, the sound overall, uh, but also that title. I mean, it's it's a long doozy of a title, but that's almost you know word for word a an Undertale sort of title. Mm-hmm. After that, we're gonna change gears just a little bit and talk about Pokey means business. This one was done by Hiptanaka, and so this is the first phase of the final boss against Gigas. Uh, when Pokey is there taunting you, and you're supposed to be aiming at him, this is this is the song that plays before Gigas becomes the Gigas you know. Uh, he doesn't start start that way. Is that weird, screwed up swirl skull thing? So Pokey's in the mech here. Yes, this is yeah. this is where Pokey's in the mech, and it starts out with a a sort of eight bit melody because. Gigas is actually from Mother 1. He's the main antagonist of Mother 1, which is never mentioned 
a single time in all of Earthbound because his backstory is not important in in that game. Um, he's not even, I wouldn't even say he's the main antagonist. It's Pokey all the way. But it's it's meant to pay homage to that, I think, or we think. Matt's the one that pointed it out to me. But also, after that, it just gets into this super hard electric guitar synth. And it's it's just sounds corrupted and and terrifying, and it's I think supposed to be like representing that Pokey is is corrupting Gigas as as the fight goes on, or yeah yeah that makes sense huh interesting because yeah I, I think what Gigas kind of looks almost Mewtwo like in the original Mother mm-hmm. to the point where some people thought like oh maybe he can be an Echo Fighter and Smash no no not at yeah no. Nah. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, you hear the transition in the clip and it's pretty jarring, uh, but good electric guitar sounds at least, you know, for the MIDI on the, on the SNES back then. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very good song. And that boss fight is the most memorable part of Earthbound for a reason. Uh, it is very well done though. Uh, something I mentioned in, in our Earthbound episode, our last one, it's kind of one of those things that was built for the technology at the time. And I don't think I made sense when I was saying it, so I'm not going to get into this all the way. But, like, it's built specifically with the idea that you are going to be looking at it on a CRT. Mm. And and playing it on HD uh, screens kind of makes it lose a little bit, but not really. I don't know. It's a weird boss fight. And our last song, y'all know what it is already. If you know anything about Earthbound, you already know what the fifth track is. It's Smiles and Tears. This is the song from Earthbound. It's uh, it's the credits theme. And honestly, it pains me to give it to this game of all things, but I think it's among like top five credits songs on the Super Nintendo. Easily. Yeah, I'd, I'd say top five for sure. Like It's definitely a, a track of note and one that you got to know it's from this game. Uh, I, I think, yeah, when... When random quizzes out there are just saying like, oh, I'm going to play a song from Earthbound, like I think more often than not, it's going to be one at theme. But mm-hmm. uh, this is one that like, if you if you play the game, you got to know this one. Uh, I think I would have a hard time putting it up against like Chrono Triggers to Faraway Times or things like that. But I'd say top five for sure on the SNES. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just this very nice emotional piece. Uh, it incorporates the eight melodies and also includes... A at near the end, a guy saying, I miss you. I miss you. Like in this weird digitized voice, it's odd. Um, and my personal headcanon is that it is, in fact, Shigesato Itoi saying it. Nobody can convince me otherwise. I can't find a source that says who it is. So prove me wrong, internet. Must be one of his ideas that he decided to try out. And it's weirdly clear for being a digitized voice on a Super Nintendo. Eh, It's weird. Weird song, weird section, I guess. Anyways, let's get into tracks on the cutting room floor. First one is Frank Battle, but I'm not going to call it that because the name that I've always known it as is Battlin' Frankie Fly. (laughs) 
This is one of my favorite battle themes in the entire game. Uh, it plays when you fight Frank, who is the first real boss of the game, but also plays when you fight hippies anywhere in the game. Because, <laughs> lest you forget, one of the enemy types in Earthbound is a hippie. Because America. Uh... For a while, this was actually rumored to be the song that was keeping Earthbound from getting a virtual console release because of its similarity to the song Johnny Be Good. Yeah. It, it wasn't. Nintendo just thought it wouldn't sell. And they were right. That's why. <laughs> but honestly, you hear this and it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's real similar <laughs> to Johnny Be Good. Mm-hmm. Not going to claim, you know copyright or lifting or whatever <laughs> but it's just like i've heard this kind of sound before i think that might have been the point though uh i think a lot of the soundtrack was meant to be like we're gonna parody this because that's america this is america to us we're gonna parody it we're gonna parody it that kind of thing my other track is uh not one of my favorite tracks in the game but i think it's worth noting venus live There are musical performances in Earthbound. And again, this came out the same year as FF6. Now, granted, none of them are the scope of the opera scene. <laughs> How could they be? Uh, but there are, are four separate musical performances in Earthbound. Three of them by the Runaway Five, and one of them by the lovely Venus. Uh, and this is the song that plays during her performance, and this is my favorite of them. It's an okay song. I just figured, you know, it's still a cool novelty to point out that there were musical performances in this game. That was still a weird thing back in the SNES. <laughs> so what will I never forget about the game? Three months of my life gone. <laughs> uh, now, nah, to be honest, the actual thing that I will never forget about Earthbound is uh, the Gigas fight. I think the Gigas fight is is the best part. Um, and also just the plot of Earthbound's pretty good. The writing in Earthbound is fantastic. It's just that playing the game is not fun. It's not. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't bring myself to say a single nice thing about the gameplay of Earthbound. Well, I've said a couple of nice things. But ignore those. I can't bring myself to say a single nice thing. <sighs> but hey, that Gigas fight is pretty cool. And the writing is pretty fun. And Ness has a baseball bat. And he's Ness and Lucas are really fun to play in Smash, even though I'm garbage at them. I like playing as them. So let's let's call that let's call that good. Let's just say that that's where we're gonna end it. Hopefully, God, I hope this is the last time I talk about Earthbound for at least a couple months. I hope so for your sake, too, because I was surprised it was so soon after Smash Your Pieces that it <laughs> needed to be brought here. But kudos to you for getting through it and for me for getting through Gears of War. Games that uh, just don't sit too well with us, but also aliens. 
Aliens. <laughs> so that will do it for this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at The Dobaga. You can find the video version of the show on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, also at rhymeswithasia.com. But it's that podcast MP3 version you really want over at Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. But, you know, get the podcast feed on a variety of podcast storefronts all around the world. Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Take it with you on a run in your car. Listen at work. We won't tell your boss that you're listening to conversations that are about great game soundtracks. Uh, the social media for the show is at SoundChatOST, so you can leave feedback on how we're doing with these episodes or any games that you'd like to hear us you know, talk about in the future. Uh, we've got some news about the Spotify playlist, actually. Square Enix decided to add Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross to Spotify, finally, so you can finally get those Chrono Trigger songs up there for you. Now, granted... Technically, it's the DS version of Chrono Trigger. I'm still going to add them, though, because, again, we covered this in the episode. They were tooled to sound close to the SNES, as close as they could, at least. So I'm still going to add them. They're still the same songs. They're still great. Um, and it's a good thing that they were added, because neither Gears of War or Earthbound are on Spotify. That's kind of surprising. I would have guessed Gears of War should be. I'm also a little shocked about that. I'm not shocked about Earthbound. Of course, it's it's a Nintendo game. It's not going to be on. But sure, sure. yeah, I'm kind of shocked. Kevin Reeple has a lot of stuff on Spotify, but Gears 4 is not one of the things. Well, maybe Microsoft will eventually relent and, and put it up there. But what are we talking about next week? I'm talking about Joe Hisaishi, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd be able to say. I'm, I'm glad you are finally talking about him because he is well, well deserving of talking about... Uh, I am talking about Minako Hamano. Two <clears throat> games are coming out on a very busy release day. But two games in particular we're looking forward to talking about their soundtracks. September is a hellscape. It's a, it's a crazy, crazy month. Anyway, let's play us out. So uh, I couldn't. I finally had to just go ahead and put uh, one of the videos from this person out there is a youtube channel out there called keeper first that i have been a fan of for a very long time mainly because uh the owner of the youtube channel sometimes films a pianist named tom Breyer playing uh various ragtime pieces sometimes from video games and it's always a sight read the video he takes is always him seeing this sheet music for the first time immediately sitting down and just playing the song so remember that when you hear this because this is Tom Breyer's cover of Humoresque of a Little Dog. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.